Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16 this morning. We're upgrading, doing a little more each week. Isn't this nice? Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, then it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. I consider it sort of providential that so many of our scripture readings this morning had to do with food. You know, when I was in elementary school, I don't know how long this lasted, but for a little while, uh, it was an acceptable insult to call someone salty. I could have checked on Urban Dictionary to see what that meant, but uh, that's dangerous, I think, sometimes. And so it's interesting that today Jesus encourages us to be salty. Uh, last week, we kind of finished up our, our sort of mini-series in the Beatitudes, right? And, and Jesus, in this first recorded sermon of his, in his earthly ministry, he starts with this series of blessings. And, and we learned very quickly that this picture he's building of the blessed and happy man didn't really describe us very accurately. And it became increasingly clear, especially now in hindsight, that he was drawing a picture of himself as the ultimate blessed and happy man. No one could match Jesus for being poor in spirit or mourning well or being meek or having a deep-rooted hunger for righteousness or being merciful or pure in heart or a peacemaker, right? And no one was ever persecuted quite like he was. And certainly no one was ever persecuted more unfairly. Uh, you couldn't say anything negative about Jesus unless you were lying. And I'm afraid the same can't always be said of us. But as Jesus sort of wrapped up these blessings, he saw, he, we saw that he kind of personalized that last one, right? He started to aim it at us, his listeners. And we are his listeners. We are his intended audience even now because we are sitting at his feet, much like the original disciples did. That's why you're all here, to sit at his feet, not mine. Uh, and in fact, we have a better understanding than his original audience did uh, because we have this benefit of hindsight, right? They didn't understand who he was yet. We know now, which means we hear him differently. We know that he fulfilled this picture of the perfectly happy and blessed man. And yet last week, he, he graciously drew us into the picture. He said, blessed are you, which means that even while this sermon is primarily about Jesus himself, he says it's also about us. We have a part in this kingdom, not because we're so special, but because he chooses to involve us. Now, I bring this up because we see Jesus sort of switch gears today. Uh, he's still addressing us in the second person, but now he engages in a pair of illustrations. Metaphors, I guess you would call them. Uh, Ruth is usually our resident English teacher, but since the Greens are in Columbia, I can't confirm it right now. At first, I thought these were similes, but Google definitions seem to think they're metaphors, so I'll go with that. I've never really understood these things. 
It's a funny thing. C.S. Lewis always insisted that the Chronicles of Narnia were not a metaphor. I never understood that either. So anyway, uh, in any event, Jesus uses these, these two metaphors, these illustrations, and they're obviously not a literal description of his disciples, but he's nevertheless painting a picture of us as his followers. And again, it was probably jarring to hear Jesus speaking so directly to them. It's still jarring now because I'm not sure how the metaphor holds up. The more you look at it, we'll see. Uh, Jesus likens his disciples to salt and light. It's a very well-known passage to the point of it being almost cliché. Uh, but it's worth looking at them closely to see what Jesus is getting at, because he's not just painting a picture. It's, if all he said was, you guys are salt and light, that would be weird, but okay. Uh, but he also issues a couple of warnings in here, too, and he tells us a bit of how to apply this, this metaphor he's using. So he starts off with this metaphor about salt. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. <laughs> Now, when Jesus says you're the salt of the earth, I'm just going to say something up front. I love that uh, because salt and I have an understanding with each other. My mother, who's here with us this morning, and my wife have the same complaint against me. They will say that I add salt to their soup before I've even tasted it. And it's true. Uh, I have had this habit for many years. And the rumor that Georgia spreads around is also true that I add salt to canned soup. There, there was a time in my life when I added salt to ramen noodles, which is even more embarrassing. Uh, and knowing that George is looking over my shoulder today, I've adjusted my tactic. I just use less water when I'm making them so that the salt flavor is a little more concentrated. And... Georgia says the same things my mother always did, you know, that it's bad for you, or I already put salt in it. You're setting a bad example for the kids. And that's certainly true, because every time I add salt to anything, like clockwork, it's either Gwen or Evie will ask me to pass the salt to them next. And like clockwork, Georgia objects. And I say, it's okay, just a little. And then it becomes a free-for-all. And then Georgia's yelling, and I know that I started the entire scene. But now... Jesus is saying this in a very different time and place, right? This was before the days of medical concerns over high blood pressure, I think. Uh, there were no highly processed foods. Healthier diets were probably already the norm. Uh, when I went to the doctor a couple of weeks ago, I, I got blood work done, and they were kind enough to call me back and let me know that I eat too much and that my cholesterol is high. And uh, they told me that the answer was to eat a more Mediterranean diet, so I went home, and George and I ate a bunch of very salty Italian cheese, because I figured it doesn't get any more Mediterranean than that. Uh, but seriously, Jesus is already speaking in a Mediterranean culture, right? They're not worried about high blood pressure, and, and salt, salt was harder to come by. It was more of a luxury product back then. Uh, there have been times in history where salt was used as a form of currency, it's where we get this saying that someone isn't worth their salt. It makes no sense now because salt is cheap these days, but back then people knew its value. And I just want to point out that Jesus never speaks of salt in the negative. <laughs> in a parallel passage, if you turn to Luke 14, if you were to go there, Jesus starts this metaphor by saying, salt is good. And all God's people said, Amen. For years, I have wanted to inscribe that verse on our salt shaker. 
<laughs> I'm just trying to be biblical, you know? Look, you people that are coming over today, you're not coming for the low-sodium corned beef, right? Because without salt, food is terrible. Even Jesus knew that. So Jesus says, we're the salt of the earth, which I take as a compliment. But how does salt actually function? Well, we know it's not that exciting on its own, right? What it does is it brings out the flavors that are around it. Salt improves everything by making it somehow more like itself. You know, when you're a kid, you think that sugar is the magical seasoning. You can add sugar to anything, right? But years in wisdom and maturity teach you that sugar is almost always enhanced by butter. And butter is always enhanced by salt. Unsalted butter exists. I don't know why. I think it's wrong and unholy. Kind of like skim milk or non-alcoholic beer. If you're going to do it, you might as well do it right. Now, of course, even I know that too much salt can overpower other flavors. Salt is not a subtle thing. Georgia once served coffee to some friends who were visiting and accidentally put the salt decanter out. And they were polite enough to pretend that they didn't notice it for a little while. Um, But even with coffee, you can add salted caramel to coffee, and it's a nice touch, right? Salt takes what's already there and kind of brings it to life. Now, I was thinking about this this week because in both of these illustrations, Jesus does something kind of surprising. He said you are the salt, but he doesn't say that you're the salt of the kingdom or that you're the salt of the gospel. That's not how he words it. He says that you're the salt of the earth, which I take to mean that part of our job description as Christians is to bring the flavor out of the world around us. That could seem like a strange way of putting it. I don't want to overstate this, but God, he made this world, right? And, and he made this world to be good. And yes, it's corrupted by sin, but he is still the designer. And Christians, knowing that this world belongs to God, should be passionate about making the good things in this world taste even better. It is not a Christ-like approach to pretend we don't live in this world. That's Gnosticism. Jesus said, God so loved the world. His attitude in coming here was not one of hatred or disgust. He came here to redeem people and to live among them like we live. And the mark of a Christian is that we should be seeking to redeem things. We can't redeem people. That's the Holy Spirit's job. But we can point people to Christ and we can try to redeem the other things around us. Or put differently, we can try to bring the better flavors out. If we do our jobs well, or play music skillfully, or we do home improvements, or we mow our lawn nicely, or we invest in friendships, or we do laundry, or we clean the house, if we raise our kids well, anything that helps people to see the beauty of God, that is, I believe, a way of being salt. Because you're bringing out the flavor of the world as God intended it to be. You didn't make any of it, you didn't invent music, you didn't invent children or beauty, you're just bringing out the flavor. Jesus is basically saying, in a nutshell, that you, as his disciples, are the spice of life. And what a contrast that is to common ways of Christian thinking, because I think many of us believe, or at least act, as if our main purpose in life is to resist the world, avoid making mistakes, and die without making waves, you know? 
We look at the world, we think of it as rotten and irredeemable, and everything pleasurable about the world seems somehow like it's too carnal, too trivial, too unsanctified. And I think this is coincidentally why Christians over the years have largely ceded the arts to unbelievers. Not completely, of course, but there's a reason why Christian movies get such a bad rap, right? Because they're usually terrible. And honestly, before The Chosen came out, I mean, how many, I don't know how many decent Christian films you can name, right? We have some old Christian movies on VHS that you would only watch for laughs. And similarly, I can barely stomach listening to Christian music stations, not because I hate the gospel, but because it's also dang repetitive and predictable. My old boss at the deli, God love him, he used to put on K-Love at work sometimes, and it always made my day just a little bit worse. And we live in a time and in a place and in a wealthy country where entertainment is a larger industry than it's ever been, and Christian entertainment is notoriously cheesy and bad. That's not being salt. And obviously Christians are not incapable of doing art. Quite to the contrary, I think Christians have been been responsible for some of the greatest art in history, but we should have a reputation for doing it better than anyone because we know what true beauty is, because we know the creator. I didn't write it down. (laughs) Georgia pointed out a a quote by Madeline Langle saying that all good art is Christian art, essentially. It has to be, because it reflects his beauty. So why should we have a reputation for being dull or boring? Why shouldn't Christians make the best movies? Why shouldn't we have the funniest comedians and the best artists and the finest musicians, or for that matter, the best plumbers and electricians and carpenters? Frankly, the world needs better fast food workers and desk clerks and gardeners. You can bring beauty by doing just about anything well. Christians should be known for bringing the true beauty out of the earth, for making even unbelievers around us taste just a little bit better. That's what salt does. And it doesn't require much salt to do this job, because a little salt goes a long way. Even guys who add salt to canned soup know that. What strikes me, partly in reading this, is that, you know, Christians, we've never been the majority in the world. God's people have always been a minority. He picked, like, the smallest country he could find, right, in Israel, right? But if salt is a picture of Jesus' disciples, it strikes me that what he is saying is that we don't need huge numbers to start doing this job. Because a single Christian can bring the flavor out of his classroom or a work site. A handful of Christians can bring the flavor out of their neighborhood. A single church can bring the flavor out of a city. Our strength is not in numbers. Our role is not to conquer. We're to flavor. And that's what Jesus is saying. You're God's secret seasoning, and your job is to bring out the flavor of the earth around you and make it taste better. But Jesus also says we're the light of the world because he's concerned with truth as well as flavor. As you read the Gospels, you realize that Jesus uses light to illustrate different things. Sometimes he describes himself as the light, but here he says, you are the light. Now, what does light do? How does light function? What are we supposed to do to be light? Well, just thinking of it scientifically, light does a a few things. (laughs) 
First of all, light reveals things. Light shows you things that already exist but you wouldn't have otherwise seen. If I switch the light on in my kitchen, it doesn't make the mess that I find there, right? It simply reveals what was already there in the dark. Light also advertises, and I think that's what Jesus means when he says that a city on a hill can't be hidden. He's not just quoting Ronald Reagan, or maybe it's the other way around. When he says a city on a hill can't be hidden, he's not talking about sunlight. He means that no one can avoid seeing even the torches at night. A city on a hill is advertising itself at all times. George and I took the kids to a restaurant the other week, and I had to talk to a manager because they had absolutely no lights on outside, not on their sign, not in the parking lot. So how would anybody even know you were open for business? Light advertises. Light also gives a sense of security. There are fewer hidden threats when you have a light. That's why we have night lights all over the house. Light can also function as a warning. I have several such lights on the dashboard of the red car that are lit at all times. (laughs) The same is true of lighthouses. They warn ships that land is close. Light provides comfort. Same function with the night lights, right? Not just in the little girl's room. I keep them on all over the place. They're in the bathroom and in the kitchen and everywhere else, just in case I have to go downstairs. And I keep the Christmas lights plugged in in the basement at all times just so it doesn't feel haunted. Light also has a sanitizing effect, we know. It's a common saying that sunlight is the best disinfectant, and it's true. It's true literally and figuratively, because mold grows in the dark. But also, secret sins fester when no one finds out about them. Sunlight is a cure. It has a way of pushing out darkness and purging and cleaning. Light can also guide If I can see a steady light even in the darkness, it gives me a frame of reference. Now, as a negative example, I could say that's why moths fly into campfires, but it's also why sailors throughout history can sail at night, right? The stars make a pretty good map. But the most fundamental thing light does is it makes you see. Your eyes function as receptors of light. What we call sight is simply receiving light and interpreting it. And it's also true that you can't unsee things once light hits you. It presses an image into your mind. Now, how does this metaphor work? Jesus says that you function as light when you do good works. When you do things that honor God, it sheds a metaphorical light. And I think you could say that you perform all of the functions that I just mentioned. You reveal the God who made everything. When you do things that honor him, you are advertising his glory. You are giving a sense of security to your fellow believers. You warn unbelievers of a coming judgment. You can comfort your fellow disciples. You can sanitize sin by exposing it. That's not always popular. You can be a guide pointing people to Christ, and you can leave the world without excuse because once you've pressed it onto their mind, they can't unsee Now, this can come across as obnoxious at times, but that's why Jesus also says to be salt. Don't just be preachy. He says keep it interesting and flavorful and pleasant. And Jesus says that the intended audience is the world around you. You do good works for the same reason that these lights are hung from the ceiling, so that everyone can see. 
Now, that does seem contrary to what we read in some other places, right? In just a few weeks, uh, we're going to read a passage where Jesus explicitly tells us to hide what we're doing when we're doing certain good works so that we don't get credit, right? And usually we think of good works that way, something we should do for God without worrying about whether the world sees us, right? But I think this is where his lamp analogy helps us, because the purpose of a lamp is not to draw attention to itself. The lamp is there to shed light on everything else. So think of it this way. Let's say you walk into a surprise birthday party for you. And you walk in and you turn on the lights and you find your entire family, all your friends, your coworkers are there yelling, surprise! Do you stop in that moment and look up at the fluorescent lights in the ceiling and say, wow, that was awesome. Those light bulbs just made this party show up. No, that would make you an idiot. (laughs) You don't pay attention to the light. Your attention is on what is revealed. And I think that's what Jesus is getting at. It's the same principle as the salt. The role of salt is to bring out the flavor of everything around it, and the role of light is to reveal everything it touches. The point is not to draw attention to ourselves. Salt and light exist to highlight and display everything else that God is doing. Now, these two metaphors come with a slightly different word choice in Greek. Jesus says we're the salt of the earth. The Greek word is geis, meaning dirt, earth, the stuff below you. It's actually the same root where you get Georg or George or Georgia, right? It means farmer. It focuses on what's below the soil. But he says that we're the light of the world, and he uses the word cosmos, meaning universe. Cosmos carries a sort of sense of order. It means ornamentation. It can mean decoration. It can also refer to the unbelieving world around us. It can refer broadly to the entire material world. And these words can be used almost interchangeably and sometimes are, but the sense is a little bit different. And I think Jesus does it to give us a sense of placement. Because as salt, you're flavoring what's below. You're down here. But as light, you're in some sense kind of shining down. And what I think is that you almost get a priestly picture of what Jesus is describing here. And that makes sense because we're meant to be a royal priesthood. And priests stand between God and man. And we as Christians are supposed to bring out the best of earth but also shed God's light out into the cosmos. It's a form of evangelism. Both metaphors appeal to the senses and they hearken back directly to Psalm 34 where the psalmist says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Your job is to make the Father more tangible, more sensible to the people around you. You are helping them to taste and see his goodness. That's really cool imagery. But the more you think about it, it doesn't sound necessarily glorious or easy. First off, I would say being salt isn't that exciting because most of the time when you use salt, what happens to it? It disappears. Unless you're eating pretzels, which I love, but they they feature more prominently there. But most of the time, they dissolve. Salt is not flashy. And, And being light, Jesus says that people will see the light of your good works and glorify the Father in heaven, but I notice that he doesn't say how. 
Maybe they'll glorify the Father by saying, wow, that Matt is so holy. I just need to praise God for him. Then again, maybe they'll glorify God by cursing me and the God that I serve. Jesus did say, blessed are the persecuted. And we know that God gets glory in all circumstances and in a lot of different ways. Not all of them are pleasant, at least to us. The Westminster Confession says that even people who suffer in hell for their rebellion do so to the praise of God's glorious justice. So God will be glorified regardless of the circumstances. And Jesus doesn't specify that the glory here will be the pleasant kind. We don't always know what this will look like. And naturally, that makes us hesitant. The reason this passage is in here is because Jesus knew we would struggle with it. He knows that being salt and light isn't easy. Yesterday, I... I got John's email about Pam, the update on Pam, and he, it included a video update that she gave on YouTube about Ukraine. And I watched the video, and she was saying how the mission, the Logos mission from Kiev is scattered. Uh, some of them fled the country, others couldn't. She spoke of one nurse who stayed behind because of her patients. She has two patients with dementia who can't leave and have no idea what's going on. So she stayed to serve them. And now the Logos campus is officially in Russian hands. And what was a tight gospel mission operation is is now scattered and disorganized. But in the midst of this, Pam referred to this very passage. She said that they all need to be salt and light wherever God has put them. And I can't help but think that that's easier said than done. Being salt and light can sound really nice, it sounds virtuous, but in practice it's not easy. And the reason it's not easy is because not everybody likes salt, and not everybody likes light. Just try turning the light on when your spouse is sleeping. In Colossians 4, Paul says that we should let our speech be gracious and seasoned with salt. But how do you speak well-seasoned words when you're under attack? And how do you shine your light when you're sitting in the dark intentionally because you're hoping that you don't get bombed tonight? Being salt and light can be hard, and it can be costly. And that's true in war zones, but I think we all struggle with it. We struggle with it here, too. I think this is why we struggle to share our faith. I think we get self-conscious. I think we prefer to keep our heads down. We prefer to keep our faith private. But that's not what Jesus wants. I heard someone on the radio yesterday put it this way. He said that our faith should be personal, but it must never be private. Salt does no good if it stays in the shaker. And light serves no purpose if you hide it. And that's Jesus' concern here, that we will not want to be salt and light. That we will refuse to do what we were made to do. That's why he gives this warning about salt that isn't salty and light that gets hidden. Can you even imagine unsalty salt? I don't even know what that means. Unsalty salt is basically sand. And light that doesn't illuminate anything is pointless. Likewise, a Christian who does nothing to demonstrate his or her faith is useless. If you don't live like a Christian, 
or think like a Christian, or talk like a Christian, or make decisions as a Christian would, or share your faith like a Christian would. If you claim to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, but you can't point to one ounce of evidence, then you're as useless as unsalty salt, or a candle under a bed. If you follow the under the bed analogy, you're probably pretty dangerous to boot. Our calling is to be salt and light. Jesus wants his disciples to help people taste and see that his father is good, because he is good. That's your job. His metaphors focus on vision and taste, but you could easily have made the analogy involving music to the ears or perfume to the senses, right? The point is that variety isn't the spice of life. Christians are. The point is to make God's goodness tangible. It is a form of evangelism, yes, but it's more than that. It's bringing glory to God in everything that you do. Now, as we've seen again and again, some of you are probably thinking, like me, that you're not very good at this. We've felt that probably with every one of these passages so far in this sermon, and I know that I miss many opportunities to glorify God. And I also miss a lot of opportunities to evangelize. In essence, I I sometimes hide my light, and I do it either out of embarrassment or a sense of inadequacy, a fear of rejection. And I don't always act very much like salt. And I don't always season my words. And I'm not good at bringing the flavor out of the earth. I grumble a lot over my work. And I get easily frustrated, and I often forget to do my work as if I'm doing it unto the Lord. I don't even see the opportunity for seasoning the world around me a lot of the time. In short, if I measure myself accurately, this passage could easily condemn me. And maybe you feel the same way. But I take solace, and I hope you will too, in a couple of things in this passage. And the first is this, that Jesus does not present either metaphor as conditional. And what I mean by that is this. He says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Not you could be, or you might be, or you should try harder to be. He says, you are. It's your identity. He's not asking you to make yourself salt and light. As his disciples, called by him, you are salt and light. And that is confirmed further by his choice of analogy. I don't know how many of you remember chemistry class, but seeing as Jesus made the world, I'm going to go ahead and assume he knew this fact, but just a reminder, salt is an element. It's on the periodic table, number 11, N-A. Oh, see, well, yeah, table salt, right. Yeah. I know, I know. I know, I know. But the point is, is that... The point is, is that salt doesn't really break down. Not easily. In other words, salt cannot lose its saltiness. You could put salt in a shaker and it can sit for a thousand years and it'll still be salt. And a light, you can snuff out a light, but that's not what Jesus says here. He talks about it being hidden, not extinguished. 
So in other words, Jesus is not questioning the identity of salt and light. If he has called you and you belong to him, you are salt and light, whether you like it or not, and no matter how bad at it you are. It was a theme we covered in in Sunday school this morning, and it was also in the gospel reading of the fig tree, right? A fig tree is still a fig tree, even if it's unfruitful. And Jesus, he's the vine dresser. He's the one who's going to make you fruitful, and he's really good at his job. He's not going to leave you fruitless. He's not going to leave you unsalty. He's not going to leave you in the dark. Now, the one condition I will say, just as a warning, is that if you're not a Christian, then it's true that you aren't salt. It's not that you broke down. You're just not salt. Somebody sold you the wrong thing. If you ain't salty at all, You might be sand. And in that case, my appeal is simple. You need to repent and believe in Jesus. You need to take your sin to the cross and ask him to change you. Because you need him first before any of the rest of this is going to make sense. This Sermon on the Mount is addressed primarily to his disciples. The message is directed at Christians. But if you are a Christian, I don't think Jesus is inviting you to self-doubt. He's telling you to do what he made you to do, to be what you already are. He's not trying to discourage you. He's trying to illustrate just how ridiculous it is to try to be anything other than salt and light. You can't do it. If you try, you'll look cartoonishly silly in the process, putting candles under the bed and claiming that the salt stopped being salty. He's essentially making fun of you. This is meant to be funny, I think. But his goal is not to make you feel bad, but to help you relate to the world around you. He wants you to act like the salt and light you are, to stop hiding, and to start helping people to see God. So that they can taste and see his goodness, turn to Jesus, repent and believe in the one that he sent to die for them. Salt and light are good. And we see that mostly in Jesus. He's not only the most blessed man, he was a salt-of-the-earth guy. I've said it before, but he was constantly accused of having too much fun, hanging out with sinners, eating and drinking and yucking it up. He made life on earth interesting. But he was also the original light of the world. Truth lived in him. He's just telling us to imitate him, to be what he already made us to be, to help people taste and see the good God who made them. So go be salty in a good way. Add salt to everything and shed the light of Christ. And that way people will glorify your Father who's in heaven. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son. We thank you for sending him. We thank you for this sermon that he preached these many years ago, Lord, that still resonate today. Lord, we thank you that you have made our senses, Lord. And you know what they crave. But Lord, ultimately, they will never find fulfillment here on this earth. None of our senses can. 
we're clinging, we're grasping for things that we can only get a little bit of a taste of, Lord, but that little bit of a taste, that glorious taste, that thing we're trying to capture, its source is in you. Lord, we thank you that we have the privilege of shining a light on that, of bringing that flavor out. Lord, help us to do it. Give us the courage to do it. Lord, not because it'll give us a right standing with you, but because you have already purified us and made us your own. Lord, help us to be what we already are, to be the salt and light that you've called us to be. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever.